my honor this evening to introduce our speaker. Dr. Edmund Gallagher comes to us from Heritage Christian University, where there he is a professor in teaching Greek, Hebrew, and Old Testament. He also supervises the adult education program and serves as deacon of missions at the Florence Boulevard Church of Christ. He has three biological children, and just before services, he is also hosting three foster children right now for a total of six at his house. So he probably requests your prayers as well. His education uh, is befitting the subject tonight. He has a bachelor's and a master's from Fried Hardeman, and then a master's of philosophy in Hebraic and cognate languages from Hebrew Union, and also a doctorate in the history of biblical interpretation from Hebrew Union College. And it's our pleasure to have him here tonight. Thank you very much. It is my pleasure to stand before you again and uh, bring you a lesson from God's Word. I was here last summer, and you, some of you might remember, I had a lesson on hell. And I remember it was uh, Tim that gave me uh, that topic uh, a year ago, had to talk about hell. But I, I was glad to do it and hope you learned something from that. And tonight, I'm glad to stand before you and be able to talk about Jesus. Uh, that's what David called and asked me to talk about and I'm happy to do that. Um, as Tim mentioned, uh, we have a few extra people in our house over the past couple of weeks they've been there. And uh, one of the issues in doing that is just getting to know each other. Uh, getting, that's a big issue, I'll tell you that. But even just learning each other's names uh, is, is an issue. I've had my own issues with that, with these uh, new people that are in our house trying to remember which one are you again, uh, thinking of just trying to number them off. Number two, come here. But um, they, their learning our names has also been a little bit difficult. And what will they call us, right? Well, our kids, we tell our kids when you're, when you're talking to older people, adults, uh, call them, if, if you're sort of friendly with them, call them by their first name and, and put a mister in front of it or a miss in front of it. And so my wife, her name is Jody, and they'll call her Miss Jody. And uh, one day, one of the kids was at the kitchen table, and he was addressing me, and he couldn't remember my name. My name is Ed. He could not remember me, and he said, hey. He said to me, hey. And uh, my wife said, Miss Jody said, you know, don't, don't say hey. Hey is for horses. He's not a horse. Call him Mr. Ed. <laughs> Well, one of the issues is, is just getting introduced to one another, just, just learning about each other. And, and tonight, what we're going to do is I'm going to introduce you to Jesus, or at least one way of thinking about Jesus, looking at Jesus. I think sometimes we, we feel like we know his story, we know what he is about, but there are certain ways that we can reapproach it and learn and maybe in some ways a veil will be lifted and we'll see there's a lot more to the story than perhaps we had recognized. I want to start tonight in Matthew 16. The, the name of the lesson or what David asked me to uh, talk about is listening to the prophets addressing about who Jesus is. Right? So we are definitely going to the Old Testament, but we want to start in the New Testament tonight, Matthew 16. This is a famous scene where Jesus takes his disciples up to a place called Caesarea Philippi. It's north 
of Palestine. He gets them alone. He asks them, who do men say that I am? And they've heard various nominations about who Jesus might be. They've heard people talking, maybe he is a Elijah. Elijah was promised, maybe this is Elijah, come back. Maybe, maybe John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. Maybe he's Jeremiah. Maybe he's one of the other prophets. And Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter is the spokesman here, and Peter steps up and he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And what Jesus means there is, you're right, Peter. You said, I am the Christ, and that's the right answer, right? That is who I am. This is a significant point in the Gospels because up to this moment, what Jesus has trying to get, been trying to get the disciples to recognize is who he is. He is the Messiah. And up to, through the first 16 chapters, trying to get the disciples to that point of understanding that I am the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ, and finally, Peter recognizes it and addresses Jesus as the Christ. And, and you know that Christ is the Greek word and Messiah is the Hebrew word, and it's the same. So I'll probably talk more about the Messiah tonight than about the Christ, but it's the same in, in that society, the anointed one. What did Peter mean when he said, you are the Messiah. Have you ever thought to yourself, what was Peter talking about? I know what I mean when I say Jesus is the Messiah, but what did Peter mean when he said, you are the Messiah? What did he think the Messiah was? My suspicion is that the majority of Christians today at least in America, when they hear the word Messiah, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but my suspicion is the majority of people who hear that word think that what Messiah means is the one who dies on the cross for our forgiveness, the one who washes our sins away by his own blood. And so we, we talk about how Jesus is the Messiah and we mean we mean he is that Isaiah 53 figure. You know Isaiah 53, that great passage about the atoning work of Jesus, how he would uh, be led as a lamb to the slaughter. He would open not his mouth. And we look at that and we say, that's, what the, that's a picture of the Messiah. That is a messianic prophecy. And when we use the term Messiah, we mean the one who sacrifices his life for our sins. Is that what Peter thought? Peter looks at Jesus and says, you are the Messiah. What did he mean? I know for a fact he did not mean you are the one who has come to die for us. He did not mean that. Because Jesus goes on to say in verse 21, 
Look at verse 21, Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. You are not going to die for anyone. That's not going to happen to you, Peter says. I rebuke you for even voicing such a horrendous idea. Did Peter think Jesus had come to die for the sins of other people? That's, that's not what Peter thought at all. I'm sorry to make the baby cry. <laughs> uh, I don't know if that was me. Um, is that what Peter thought? Certainly not. In fact, what I imagine is going on in Peter's head here in Matthew 16 is, how can you say that you're going to die? I just told you you're the Messiah. The Messiah's not here to die. The Messiah is here to die liberate us from foreign oppression. Why would Peter think something like that? Then that's where we have to go back to the prophets and see what exactly did they say and how did that shape what Peter thought about the Messiah. Certainly, I don't think we can argue with the fact Peter missed it. All the apostles missed it, but why? did they miss it? Why did they miss it? If you go to the very first verse, who, who is the Messiah? All right. If you go to the very first verse of the book of Matthew, this is the first verse of the New Testament as it is in our, in our Bibles. And look what it says about Jesus. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, and I'm reading, by the way, the New American Standard, so maybe it'll be a little bit different from you, uh, but it says Messiah there. Jesus the Messiah, look what it says. The son of David. The son of David. The son of Abraham also. The son of David. Matthew, probably more than any of the other gospel writers, Matthew wants to tell us that Jesus is the son of David. And so that phrase, son of David, comes up over and over again in the gospel of Matthew. And it even comes up a lot in this genealogy where where Matthew has structured the genealogy of Jesus so that there are 14 generations between Abraham and David and there are 14 generations from David to the deportation to Babylon and there are 14 generations from the deportation of Babylon to, to the Messiah. And that is a, a genealogy that highlights the significance of David. In fact, probably even the number 14. What's, so, what's the big deal about the number 14? Probably the big deal about the number 14. Did you know that Hebrew letters can also stand for numbers? It's sort of like Roman numerals. You know how Roman numerals are actually letters of the alphabet, like a V or an I or an X, and they stand for numbers? Hebrew letters are the same way. Hebrew letters, can stand, they also stand for numbers. So if you want to write a number in Hebrew, what you're actually doing is you're writing letters down. If you, that means 
that any name, any word in Hebrew, you could actually add up the value, the numerical value of that word. If you added up the numerical value of the word David, you know how much you get? 14. 14. Now, this is not rock solid. I don't know that this is what Matthew is doing. I suspect what Matthew is doing is saying, look at this, 14, 14, 14, David. I suspect Matthew is highlighting Jesus is the son of David. Even in the genealogy, even in the way it's structured, but It's clear that throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew wants to highlight that Jesus is the son of David. When he is the Messiah, remember Jesus asks the question. Jesus says to the scribes and Pharisees, whose son is the Messiah? You remember Jesus asking that question? This is Matthew 22. Whose son is the Christ? They know immediately the answer to that. He's the son of David. uh, Jesus then goes on to say, well, how is it then David calls him Lord? As it is written, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, that I may make thy enemies a footstool for thy feet. Everybody knew the Messiah is the son of David. This goes back to a prophecy. 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7 is probably the most important text in the Old Testament for understanding the Messiahship of Jesus because it is the origin point of the promise. 2 Samuel 7 is that chapter where David wanted to build a house for God. He said, I'm living in this great house made of cedar. God is living in a tent, tabernacle. I need to build a great house for God. And God said, I don't want you to build a house for me, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to build a house for you, God says. And what the house is going to consist of is a dynasty. I know, God says to David, I know that you're a little nervous because I took the kingdom away from Saul because he sinned. And you're worried that maybe I'll do that to you too. Don't worry about it. I'm not going to. I'm not going to take the kingdom away from you. In fact, your kingdom is an eternal kingdom. When you die, your son will come up on the throne and he will reign. And and if he sins, I'm not going to take this kingdom away from him either. I will rebuke him with the rod of men and the stripes of the sons of men, but I'm not going to take the kingdom away from him. Your kingdom, look what it says in 2 Samuel 7, verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Here is the origin point of the promise. A descendant of David will always reign on the throne in Israel. Now, early on, it's pretty easy to imagine from David's perspective that this is fulfilled by Solomon. David dies, his son comes up. It even says, uh, verse 13, your son, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, that's what Solomon does. Solomon comes and builds the temple. He builds a house for my name. Solomon builds the temple. He's on the throne. He certainly sins, but he is only corrected with the rods of men 
and the kingdom is not taken away from him. And then his son comes to the throne. And then his son comes to the throne and it seems to work for a while. But eventually it doesn't work anymore. Nebuchadnezzar comes and he completely destroys the kingdom of David and the throne of David is laying in the dust and the, the kingdom of Israel is no more and it would seem that the promise of God is broken. It would, and have you read Psalm 89 in a while? Read Psalm, don't read it right now, but when you go home, read Psalm 89 and you will see someone struggling with this very idea. You promised, you God, you promised that David's throne would last forever and his crown is thrown in the dust now. What happened? That's what Psalm 89 says. And the answer is not given in Psalm 89. The psalmist is left with the question, what happened? What did you do, God? Why weren't you faithful to your promise? Eventually, the idea comes, is revealed, that it's not, the promise in 2 Samuel 7 is not in fact fulfilled by all these earthly kings that reigned in the line of David, but they were looking forward to a time when a one like David, the true son of David, would come and sit on the throne in Israel. And they were looking for, in fact, even while, even while, the Davidic kings were reigning on the throne in Israel, even while they were still there. Prophets were looking forward to a time when a better king would come, somebody really like David. Look at Isaiah 11. Isaiah chapter 11, one of the famous prophecies here. It says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Do you remember who Jesse is? Jesse is David's daddy. When it says a shoot will come from the stem of Jesse, that means a son of David is going to come. A son of David is going to come, just like from Jesse, David's father. And this is what this son of David is going to be like. He is go the spirit of the Lord will rest on him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness will be the belt about his waist. It's at this time, verse 6 says, that the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little boy will lead them. Do you see what's happening when the son of David comes, when this great king from the line of David comes, he will establish justice. He will bring peace. And there will be so much peace. It's not just peace between me and you. It's not just that Al-Qaeda will stop trying to blow us up. Right? It's not even, or ISIS, right? It's not even just like that. Th that will certainly happen, but it's not just that. Peace, so much peace that the 
the lion is going to eat straw like the ox. The lion is not going to eat the ox. The lion is going to eat beside the ox. There is peace between the animals in this vision of what the messianic time will be. When the Messiah comes, you can send your kids out to play with the snakes. That's what Isaiah 11 says. Uh, verse 8, the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. Send your kids out, go play with the snakes, honey. No, go by the cobra's hole. He was asking about you yesterday. Go play with the snakes. There will be peace among all living creatures, Isaiah 11 says. When the son of David comes. When the son of David comes, he will establish justice. He will be like David. When Peter looked at Jesus and said, you are the Messiah, what he thought of in his mind is, you are the son of David. You are the son of David, therefore you are like David. What is David like? We have these two different images in our head of David, and, and a lot of times... When we think of David, we think of this young man sitting under a tree with his harp and the sheep are over here frolicking around and this young man is thinking of all these spiritual thoughts and he's strumming on his harp and just having a lovely afternoon and it's just beauty and wonder. It's like a Thomas Kincaid painting almost. There's another, I don't want to deny that side of David, there's another side of David. There is a side of David that comes up to Israel as they are in battle. As a young man, this David comes, as a, as a young man, he comes up and his brothers are afraid because there is a Philistine giant over here defying the armies of God, saying, send out your best against me and whoever wins, the other nation will be their slaves. And Saul, the man head and shoulders above everybody in Israel, the king, the first king of Israel, is cowering in his tent. And this young man, David, comes up and says, what are y'all doing? This uncircumcised Philistine is defying the armies of God and y'all are scared? What's wrong with you? I'll go do it myself. He takes a sling. He takes five stones. He goes up against the giant, and the giant is mocking him, but David mocks the giant right back and says, this very day God will give you into my hand and I will chop your head off. That's what he says to him, and he does it. Takes that sling, knocks the giant down, goes up to the giant. I don't want to... I do sort of want to get graphic here. The story is graphic, all right? I know kids are in the audience. He takes that giant's sword, his own sword, chops the giant's head off, and he carries that head back to Saul. He says, look at this. This is the one you were afraid of. There is that side of David as well. There is the side of David that inspired songs such as this. Saul has slain his thousands and David has slain how many? Tens of thousands. 
David has slain his tens of thousands. There is a side of David that says, that woman over there is good looking to me. He brings her in, they get in trouble, and they have the problem of the husband. And David's plan A is get the husband drunk and send him to his wife's house. When that doesn't work, plan B is let's just kill him. Put him in the front lines, let's get rid of him. There is the side of David described in 2 Samuel 8. Look at 2 Samuel 8. This is not, this is, 2 Samuel 7 is what we were just looking at. 2 Samuel 8, look at, look at what's going on in 2 Samuel 8. Now after this, it came about that David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took control of the chief city from the hand of the Philistines. He defeated Moab and measured them with the line, making them lie down on the ground. And he measured two lines to put to death and one full line to keep alive. Do you see what David is doing to his enemies? Just lie down on the ground. That line, kill them. That line, kill them. That line, you can keep them alive. They'll be my slaves. There is a side of David that is a ruthless warrior. David is absolutely a warrior king who is not afraid of killing. In fact, that's, that's what he does for a living. You go on and read 2 Samuel 8. 2 Samuel 8 says, David engaged in battle after battle after battle, and you know what? David never lost. David did not lose. David always defeated his enemies. And when we who are oppressed by Rome, we first century Jews who are oppressed by Rome and wanting so much that power and the kingdom that David once ruled, when we think about the glory that will be when the son of David comes, it's going to be like it was with David. When the son of David comes, he will defeat our, he's going to be like David. He's going to lead our armies in battle and he won't lose. He will walk up to Caesar with just a sling and five stones and he will defeat him. Pilate won't last long when the son of David comes. When the Messiah, the anointed king, the son of David comes, our enemies will cower before us and we will be powerful again. Do you see how a certain reading of the Old Testament can absolutely lead to the ideas that Peter had about who Jesus is. There are a lot of pro prophecies I would like to look at. I, let, let's look at Psalm 2. Look at Psalm 2. 
This is quoted a lot in the New Testament as fulfilled in Jesus. And let's just read and try to get an understanding of what is going on in this psalm and how somebody like Peter probably read it. Why are the nations in an uproar and peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his, look at it, anointed Messiah, Christ, anointed king. Against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Can you tell here in the first three verses what's going on in Psalm 2? What is the picture that's being painted for us? Think back to the time of David, the monarchy. And the king is a warrior king. The king subdues the nations around them. We saw 2 Samuel 8, David goes out and defeats Moab. He defeats Ammon. He defeats Edom. He defeats all these nations around Israel. And the psalmist is picturing to himself these other kings who have been defeated by David and they are saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast, let's get liberated from David. Let's throw off the yoke of the Israelite king. We're tired of being under their thumb. We want to be liberated from them. And look at verse four. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. You see how this is pictured in the mind of the psalmist? These other Kings can surely do nothing as long as God's own king is sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. Because the king in Jerusalem has his power from the Lord. And so these other kings, though they may plot and though they may plan and scheme, they can do nothing. They are subdued before God. I suspect somebody like Peter read the psalm in that way. And so Peter looks at Jesus in Matthew 16. He says, Jesus, you are the Messiah. And what I think Peter meant by that is, first of all, you are the son of David. You are the warrior king who has come to liberate us from these foreign oppressors. You are the warrior king who has come to defeat God's enemies. And God's enemy number one is Rome. You have come to liberate us from these things. We know Peter didn't get it right. I think maybe we're beginning to see why he thought the way he thought. He was ready for battle, right? Peter was ready for battle. When the Roman soldiers come to Jesus in Gethsemane to capture him, what has Peter got? He's got his sword, he's drawn his sword, he's swinging that sword around. He is ready to go to war. 
When Jesus says, you know, you're going to deny me three times, Peter says, this is what's going to happen, Jesus. Even though all may turn away, I won't turn away. I am ready to go to death with you. And I believe him. Peter was ready to die with Jesus if it was death on the battlefield. Peter was ready. He was ready to do it right now. But when it ended up being Jesus led away by the hated Roman soldiers, giving himself up to the hated Roman soldiers, that's where Peter couldn't understand what was going on. Peter didn't get it. You see, Jesus was the son of David. He is the son of David. He is the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7, that prophecy that one descended from David would always reign on his throne. He is, in fact, even the warrior king, the anointed king in the line of David. And he has come to defeat the enemies of God. But those enemies are not Rome, and those enemies are not any physical power. Jesus has come to fight a battle against sin and death and Satan and the forces of evil. And that is, in fact, if you look through the Gospels, that is what Jesus is doing. This son of David, this warrior king, has come to defeat Satan and all his power. He goes into the wilderness and he does battle with Satan for 40 days. They are there battling and the son of David wins that battle because the son of David does not lose. He goes and he sees someone bound by an unclean spirit and he goes into battle against that unclean spirit and the son of David does not lose. He sees someone blind or some other physical ailment and he knows this is someone who is being oppressed by the forces of evil and the son of David goes into battle against that ailment and he does not lose. He is here to liberate the people of God from the forces that oppress them. But those forces are not Rome. That's what Peter got wrong. The enemies of God are not Rome. The enemies of God are sin and death and Satan. And so he has come forgiving people of their sins. He has come battling Satan, as Peter says in Acts 10. Peter eventually got it. In Acts chapter 10, when he's at the house of Cornelius and he is describing to Cornelius what Jesus was like, what it was like to be with him, Peter says, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Peter recognized at this point in Acts chapter 10 that the entire ministry of Jesus was warfare. It was warfare. And he was, even in healing people, 
he was healing them because they were oppressed by the devil. Remember that woman who was bent over? This is Luke 13. She was bent over for 18 years and Jesus heals her, but it's on a Sabbath day and people get mad at him for healing him. And he says in Luke 13, 16, that this woman has been bound by Satan for 18 years and should I not heal her? Should I not go into warfare against Satan on behalf of this woman? You remember all the exorcisms that Jesus performed. He says in Luke 11, verse 20, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It is in this work that I am establishing God's kingdom defeating the enemies of God. He does fulfill prophecy. He does fulfill the idea of the son of David, of the Messiah. If we were living with Peter in Galilee 2,000 years ago, we would probably have similar thoughts about what the Messiah was supposed to do and who he was just from a straight reading of the Old Testament without maybe putting all the pieces together. But with Jesus in front of us, we can see how he is in fact the son of David who battles our enemies who defeats our enemies and grants us liberation from them and new life. That is what Jesus came to do. That is what the prophets said the son of David would come to do. Jesus certainly did it in a way that was unexpected, but he did it in a much grander and magnificent way than was expected. And so Jesus asked those scribes and Pharisees, he said to them, in Matthew 22, whose son is the Messiah? And they said, the son of David. The Messiah is the son of David. And Jesus said, well, how then does David call him Lord? The scribes and Pharisees and Peter himself probably at that time, what they wanted was the son of David. That's all they wanted. They didn't want anything more than just somebody like David. They didn't want the Lord of David. What they got was the son of David and they got David's Lord as well. Unexpected, but more magnificent than they anticipated. Jesus is still battling our enemies and still offering redemption from sin and death and Satan. And that's the hope that we as his people have tonight. Maybe you're not one of his people and maybe you want to become a follower of Jesus even this very night by confessing him as your Lord and repenting of your sins, being immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. Maybe, maybe you've done all that and you haven't lived a life worthy of the name Christian 
Maybe you need to repent of something in your life and ask for the prayers of this body of believers. If, if you have a need, the son of David is ready to forgive you. The son of David is ready to fight on your side.